Hello again. Welcome back to the Luxi Podcast, a podcast to reignite your wonder by exploring the intersection of science and luxury. I'm Dr. Lex, PhD, infectious disease expert, podcast host, and champagne obsessive. This is the third in my trio of holiday episodes, and although it's coming out after the New Year's Eve festivities, I personally don't need an excuse to bust out some bubbly. I've always, since I've been 21, of course, liked a good sparkling wine or champagne, though my penchant for Bellinis and mimosas has grown into a more mature appreciation for a very dry brute. My interest in the process behind champagne making peaked with the gift of a book. My partner happens to be particularly adept at gifting books, and a few years ago he gifted me the biography of Barbe Nicole Ponsardin Clicquot, otherwise known as the Veuve Clicquot, Veuve meaning widow in French. Though her husband Philippe started the Champagne House, she took over after his early death and built it into the powerhouse brand it is today. She also had a hand in bringing about the association that Champagne currently has with celebrations. She was a truly magnificent woman, well ahead of her time, and with a mind like a steel trap. Though the company of Veuve Clicquot is no longer has a woman at its head, I have gravitated to this excellent champagne, which also happens to have a uniquely feminist background. There are also many excellent small grower vintner champagne producers now that are run by women. There's also been, for me, something special and intoxicating about the sparkle in champagne. Those tiny little bubbles that seem to tickle your nose and add a bit of celebration into every sip. Since I'm at heart a curious person, hence this podcast, and not above ruining a good magical moment with a scientific fact, let's dive into a bubbly glass of champagne and see what it's all about. First things first, what is champagne? Champagne has two criteria. It is a sparkling wine made in the Champagne region of France, and two, it is made under the rules of appellation. Appellation is something that the French and others take very seriously. It is a legally defined and protected geographical indication primarily used in wines. Appellation can have other requirements associated with it and for champagne to be called champagne, the vineyards producing the grapes not only have to be in a specific area, but they need to follow specific practices around growing, harvesting, and pressing the grapes. And the vintners need to follow the secondary fermentation of the wine be done in a bottle. This may all seem a little fussy, and it is, and it also protects unique agricultural and food production processes around the world, not just champagne. If you get a bottle of bubbly from outside of the region, Champagne region of France, but it was produced using the same methods, then you will likely see Méthode Champagnoise or Méthode Traditionnelle somewhere on the bottle. There are several different types of champagnes. There is the Prestige Cuvée, which is blended wine. Uh, most champagnes today are blended, and it is the one that is considered the top tier by the producer. Examples include Moet and Chandon's Don Perignon and Louis Roederer's Cristal. Fun fact, Cristal was made as early as 1876, but was exclusively for the Russian Tsar's consumption. Blanc de Noirs are white wine from red or black grapes. This produces a white wine with a slightly more yellow color, and that is what's used to make the champagne. Blanc de Blancs are made from Chardonnay and very rarely Pinot Blanc grapes, so those are white grapes, and so they'll have a little bit of a clearer color. Rosé champagnes are produced from either leaving the clear juice from dark grapes to macerate in the skins for a brief time, or by adding still red wine to the sparkling wine in the champagne production process. 
One important aspect of champagne is for the taste is the dosage, and this refers to the amount of sugar in wine that is added to adjust the overall levels of sugar in the champagne when bottled for sale. While sweet champagne is currently a little out of fashion, the dosage is used to balance the perception of acidity in the wine, not so much to make it sweet. Terms such as extra brut, brut, extra dry, sec, etc. are used to denote how much dosage is used. Extra brut being the least and the driest, and du being the most and the sweetest. The Champagne region of France has a long history of providing celebratory wines. In 496 AD, Clovis was baptized in the Rheims Cathedral and was crowned the first king of France, and champagne wines were used in the ceremony. Starting in 896, all French kings were coronated in Rheims, and the wines of the region were served at the celebrations and soon took on international acclaim. The oldest record of sparkling wine is from a Benedictine monastery near Carcassonne in 1531, and it was made by bottling before the fermentation had ended. As in most good things that we eat, it was a bit of an accident. In in the 1600s, an English scientist and physician, Christopher Marret, published the addition of sugar to wine to create the secondary fermentation, well before the storied monk Dom Perignon. And English glassmakers developed glass bottles that could withstand the internal pressure of the fermenting wine. There were many other innovations around sparkling wine over the centuries, with the 1800s being the banner century for champagne production as we know it now. There are many extremely fascinating historical facts about champagne, but we're here for the science and what says champagne more than bubbles. First, let's get the question of the glass out of the way. In a survey done by the Wine and Spirit Education Trust with wine tasters, there was a preference for the tulip-shaped glasses, but it seemed that that was because the tasters thought so. So basically, what you thought would be the best glass is what ended up being the best glass for you. Although this may have some underlying scientific truth to it, while tulip glasses pair the glass length of a champagne flute, essential for a good bubble speed, and the distribution at the surface with the wide headspace of a coupe, better for sticking your nose in to get those lovely aromas. There also may be a slight edge for different shaped glasses for different champagnes. Overall, go with the glass you like. Personally, I am either a champagne flute or tulip glass kind of person. I am far too klutzy to have a coupe glass around. However, the steady stream of tiny bubbles flowing up from the bottom of a champagne glass, whatever the shape, is a defining feature of a good champagne. To help this process along, glass producers introduce laser-etched glasses. In laser-etched glasses, bubble nucleation is most often triggered at the bottom of the glass with a ring-shaped structure made by adjoining laser beam impacts. This leads to a vertical stream of bubbles that is seemingly endless. So the shape and makeup of the vessel that champagne is in can impact the nature of the bubbles and where the bubbles come from. For champagne or beer or any other naturally carbonated beverage, the bubbles arise from the CO2 that's generated as a byproduct of secondary fermentation, or as is most common in production these days by aerating CO2 through a still liquid. These fermentations are done in sealed containers like a champagne bottle so that the released CO2 dissolves into the liquid. When the cork is popped, some CO2 is released into the air immediately, but a good proportion remains in the liquid and forms bubbles. CO2 also diffuses at the air-wine interface of the glass, but that is imperceptible to us. The really interesting thing is that the bubbles don't only bring CO2 to the surface, they also bring dissolved volatile organic compounds. Remember that vocab word? VOCs are responsible for aroma. So when the bubbles burst, they release these organics and we inhale them. This process enhances the aroma of the champagne in the overall tasting experience. Beaumont et al. researched the impact of glass construction on champagne bubbles using 2D and 3D computational fluid dynamic modeling of the flow of the bubbles and published it in the journal Food, my kind of journal. Surprisingly, they found a two-phase flow of the bubbles in a single glass of champagne. The two flows were toroidal, 
which is a fancy scientific way of saying donut-shaped, along the ascending column of bubbles and surface eddies that interacted with that column flow. Since this modeling predicted the flow of the bubbles, which was later validated looking at the actual champagne, this could be a tool for glassmakers to determine the optimal shape and etching for champagne glasses to achieve maximum bubble and a better tasting experience. So how do bubbles contribute to the flavor from champagne? A team led by Isabelle Kubash set out to characterize the bubbles in champagne with the hypothesis that they would be akin to the bubbles in sea spray. Sea spray is also used to transport dissolved gases, salts, surfactants, and biological materials into the atmosphere. Sea spray is made up of two types of droplets, film droplets, which are smaller and form as the film of the emerged bubble disintegrates, and jet droplets, which are larger and formed as the cavity of the bubble collapses and ruptures. The scientists set up a series of experiments using a syringe pump in five different types of liquids, including champagne. Using an array of methods including extreme close-up photography, ultra-fast imagery, high-speed digital cameras, and again, fluid dynamic modeling, they measured various aspects of the bubbles in the different liquids. So fun fact, it turns out that 300 to 500 bubbles per second burst at the top of a champagne glass. It's a lot of fizz. Champagne is comprised only of larger jet droplets, as opposed to sea spray, which is mostly film droplets. This disproved the researcher's hypothesis, but that's okay. A disproved hypothesis is still useful information. All those jet droplets mean that aerosol from the top of a champagne glass evaporates 10 times faster than from the surface of still liquids. Right here is the crux of the whole champagne situation. The fizz, i.e. the bubbles bursting, equals more exchanges of gases and volatile organics, and that's more chances for your nose to pick up all those amazing aromas and those scents round out how you taste the champagne. One interesting fun fact from this research was that larger bubbles created more aroma diffusion, and thus one would think a better champagne tasting experience. However, smaller bubbles have always been prized in champagne making. Now, I know this episode is about champagne, but while I was putting it together, I got so excited about bubbles in general and the other roles they play in our lives. Walls et al. wrote a great review, another review article, about the interaction between bubbles and microorganisms. In nature, bubbles are formed across natural bodies of water whenever the surface is broken and air is introduced into the water. So rainfall, snowfalls, breaking waves. One cool example is whitecaps. Whitecaps are a myriad of small bubbles rising to the surface. Bubbles can also be introduced by aeration. Whichever way bubbles are made, the fluid around them is not stagnant, but instead flows over the bubble-generating area. Think the toroids and eddies of the champagne. Bubbles have many desirable characteristics, such as aeration and transport of biomaterial and chemicals, and some detrimental effects, such as outbreaks of diseases, because bubbles can carry microorganisms. In fact, while a bubble is rising, it is also mixing. There is an ambient fluid formed in the wake of the bubble, and it is shedding vortices that can spread laterally and provide passive transport for microorganisms and particles. As we've seen with champagne, when a bubble reaches the surface, the thin film that defines its path leads to a hole in the retraction of that film. This causes the bubble to burst and its contents to be exposed to the air. This mixing or aeration performed by bubbles is crucial to life in water and in such things like bioreactors. Bubbles even live on after they burst by creating smaller bubbles that themselves mix and burst or by releasing pathogen or particle-filled droplets. All of this from a humble result of surface tension, pressure, and fluid dynamics. In the paper by Walls, the author states that bubbles deeply connect physics to biology through a subtle interface of fluid dynamics, which I thought was just really cool to think about how the different sciences interact in the world to create beautiful things like bubbles. So a final fun fact. Well, okay, 
fun two facts. In a paper published in 2002 in the journal Anesthesia, Pemberton et al. looked at the angle of cranial cervical extension, i.e. neck bend, involved in drinking from various types of champagne glasses. They found that the mean extension from the neutral position required to drain each glass was, and I quote, a narrow flute was 40 degrees, a wide flute was 22 degrees, a wine glass was 26 degrees, and a champagne saucer or coupe glass was 0 degrees. So drinking from the narrow rim champagne flute required significantly more extension than other types of glasses. So do some neck structures before a night of champagne drinking if you favor a narrow champagne flute. And if you're thinking about what to pair with your champagne, Schmidt et al. proposed an umami pairing model in a 2020 article in Science Rep, which looks at the free glutamate and free nucleosides and their action on the umami receptors on our tongue to pair foods. So think such combinations as eggs and bacon and ham and cheese. So glutamate is an amino acid most commonly found as a neurotransmitter, and nucleosides are nucleotides without the phosphate group, and we all know what nucleotides are. Looking at the umami compounds in champagne and oysters, the scientists hypothesize that the pairing is so good due to the free glutamate in the champagne and the free glutamate and the nucleosides in the oysters, all hitting those umami receptors on your tongue. They even measured the amounts in different champagnes and oysters to find the optimal pairing. Eight champagnes with long yeast contact and European oyster Austria edulis rather than the Pacific oyster was the best pairing, according to their scale. I absolutely love this idea of a scientific approach to food pairings, although without setting up a chemistry lab in the shed, I don't know if it's practical for everyday life. So, vocab words for this episode. Fermentation is the chemical breakdown of a substance, bacteria, yeast, or other microorganisms typically involving effervescence in the giving off of heat. Fluid dynamics is a discipline of fluid mechanics that describes the flow of a fluid. Film droplets are smaller droplets that form as the film of the emerged bubble disintegrates. Jet droplets are larger droplets that are formed as the cavity of the bubble collapses and ruptures. Glutamate is an amino acid involved in neurotransmission, and nucleosides are akin to nucleotides but without the phosphate group. Thanks for listening to this episode of Luxi. A very special thank you to my audio engineer, Demos. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. If you have a correction, comment, or suggestion for a topic, you can reach me at drlex at luxi.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at LuxiPod, and our website is luxi.podcastpage.io. If you like us, please subscribe. Please also leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you again in two weeks, and I hope in the meantime, you pop open a bottle of bubbly. <laughs>